This show is dedicated to everyone that labors throughout the world. Happy Labor Day. Welcome, alternative news listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. This show includes a pre-recorded interview on September 3rd, 2020, which will be uploaded for your listening edification on the evening of Monday, September the 7th, 2020. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 20th post-COVID show, A New World, But the Same Place. This month is our membership drive, and under COVID circumstances, our membership drive is taking new forms. This is Undercover Greg. Has anyone noticed any changes in Austin over the last six months? Yes, it has gotten and stayed hotter, but we have also been keeping socially distanced, washing our hands, and wearing our damn masks. For the safety of our beloved staff and programmers and volunteers, KOP has been working from home. Each day we craft a way on our own devices to bring you the sound of Austin that you have known and supported for over 25 years. This includes keeping your radio still screaming and news and public affairs shows that bring you timely information and help during the pandemic. A lot has been new and different for all of us. All through September, we are conducting our fall membership drive differently, with more of our wonderful content and less of our pitching. Think of it as a unique opportunity to support the station you love, KOOP. Listen in throughout the month as new and different fall membership drive will be morphing into new and different things. But don't hesitate to help us out by going to KOP.org and the safe and secure online donation button. If you do have specific questions or issues related to the virus, please contact us at 512-710-5353 or at COVID-19 at KOOP.org. Remember, stay well, stay safe, stay weird, and stay listening to KOOP. So stay tuned. But first, as we do before every Bringing Light into Darkness news and analysis show, we first go to war. I was 
This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gattos. Good evening. We now turn to the content of tonight's show. Tonight's show's focus is on Nicaragua, its government's accomplishments, and our attempts to overthrow its democratically elected government. Before introducing our guest, in our news segment, we wanted to set the stage and return to a major theme, a pillar theme, if you will, of bringing light into darkness, namely the unfortunate but reversible objective tendency of U.S. foreign policy to oppose and overthrow governments that best serve the majority population interests of that country and replace them with governments whose loyalty is not to their own majority population, but instead their loyalty is to creating the most favorable investment and profitability environment to large Western multinational investment capital. So we begin the show with an excerpt from a Martin Luther King tribute show we aired on January 27th, 2020, in which we provide empirical data that we believe proves our assertion. On January the 27th, 2020, we aired the following. One of the things that Dr. King had said He was really into principles embedded into ethics that take us beyond national allegiances and is beyond Vietnam speech, as well as the one that he did just a couple of months before that in in February of 1965 or 67, excuse me. He mentioned in the, uh, the six casualties of war, dissent was one of them, but most profoundly, a common theme became this world citizen type of notion that all life is sacred, that the arrogance of a nation like ours seems to convolute that realization that there is no such thing as a lesser human being. And so uh, he was asking in his Beyond Vietnam speech to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of firm dissent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. And I wanted to very briefly go through some of the history of our involvement in some of these countries post-World War II and some of the tools that are being used to try to get the world to behave in a way that we feel they should all behave through sanctions, through other forms of interventions, and sometimes even through outright invasion and war. So in this speech, the Silence is Betrayal speech of 1967, April 4th, he mentioned, he acknowledged this in his comments about the United States he was afraid was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, and he can no longer be silent. And in his Nobel Prize that he won, I think it was 1964, he said, it was, quote, a commission to work harder than I ever worked before for the brotherhood of man this calling that takes me beyond national allegiances uh, once again. So these, these underlying principles that what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong, and that there's no such thing as a lesser human being, the idea of putting ourselves in the shoes of other populations as they look at the behavior of our country, we're kind of all tied together. So when we look at, in Haiti, the two coups, actually in 1990s when Aristide, after so many years of working and fighting for independence post-1804 when Haiti became Haiti after Saint-Dominique as the richest colony of the French colonial empire at that time. So Aristide, when he was elected in 1990, that was 186 years later after that independence. And But within eight months, Aristide, he was cooed out 
from 1991 to 1994, President Clinton was it was his administration, and he actually through a neoliberal type of economic agreements of sorts, allowed, would be, I guess, the best word to put it, uh, Aristide uh, to be restored to power from 1994 to 1996. And in 96 is actually when Aristide formed this family Lavalas party. What I'm trying to get at is that when he was reelected, Aristide was in 2000, Lavalas party, they received like over 90 or, or about 90% of the vote. And they were in power for four years until another coup engineered by the U.S. dislodged them. But during that time, illiteracy was slashed. Land reform, school books were subsidized. Lunch programs were expanded. The military was disbanded. Women's rights and high government positions were awarded. A minimum wage was raised in 1995 and doubled in 2003. Unpaid taxes, which is a common denominator for many nationalist movements in order to fund some of the needed programs that collected unpaid taxes from the wealthy occurred. Uh, Community stores with price drops created a significant impact on malnutrition and, and a number of other justice and human rights gains. But this is all lost with that second coup in 2004. I think when you look at what side the United States has been on in this hemisphere and throughout the world, it, it becomes and reveals a consistent pattern. I think with Iraq, the pre and post sanctions, and then the invasion in 2003 led to a quality of life that just fell off the cliff for the vast majority of uh, Iraqis. In Libya, some years later in 2011, Libya with the highest human development index in the continent of Africa of some 54 countries at that time, it had the highest human development index. Yet we were being told here in the United States through misleading information that somehow there was a humanitarian crisis. I mean, figure that. The place that uh, has the highest quality of life, education, has the highest life expectancy, uh, basically, the HDI is Human Development Index is an indice of quality of life, the highest. So why would we why would we be seeking that country to be the one that needed to be changed out of all of them, unless we were misleading the American public? The Center for Economic Policy Research um, came out with important work throughout these periods, documenting, for instance, in Honduras, Jose Antonio Cordero, uh, an economist from Honduras, detailed what uh, the living conditions were for the majority population in Honduras before Zelaya became president in January of 2006 through the coup of June of 2009. Minimum wage increases of 60% that still did not cover the basic consumption bundle, but barriers to education and, and mandatory, the national policy of mandatory school fees was abolished. It opened the doors to elementary school system that allowed some almost uh, half a million Honduran children access to schooling for the first time. It implemented a, it, actually a 25% increase in the number of children receiving free school lunches. And it was, became the fastest growing country in Central America after Costa Rica, with a GDP rate of some 6.6% in 2006. And under, under Zelaya, the economy grew more during the previous administration. Uh, lastly, just about Honduras, is that the economy grew, as we mentioned, inequality was also falling. Uh, significantly. Poverty was reduced significantly in the first two years, of which there was data. So all of these positive impacts on the majority population were going on in these countries whose governments we overthrew or helped to overthrow. In these countries. So the government that we supported, the engineered coup that we actually were a major part 
of facilitating our own ambassador, Hugo Lawrence, the U.S. ambassador to Honduras, said, quote, there is no doubt that the military, Supreme Court, and National Congress conspired on June 28, 2009 in what constituted an illegal and constitutional coup against the executive branch. So once again, we were on the wrong side. I don't want to go through all of these, but in Ecuador, more currently, you had Rafael Correa, president from 2007 to 2017, a 10-year period where all the major indices went up for the, for the uh, majority population. Extreme poverty dropped, and then since Carrilla was replaced by, by Moreno. U.S.-backed Lenin Moreno. The inequality has, has begun to soar once again, and it demonstrated that Moreno's policies of reducing social spending was principally benefiting the rich. This is that neoliberal type of impact that you just see so often. If you just move on quickly to Bolivia, in Evo Morales, he was president from 2006 to 2019. In 13 years, they reduced illiteracy significantly from 13% to 2.4%. They lowered unemployment rates in half from 9.2 to 4.1. Moderate poverty decreased significantly. Extreme poverty decreased significantly. They built 5,000 educational centers. You can go on and on. This is just well-documented in the public domain. Yet, every one of these instances, our foreign policy has been on the wrong side of what's best for the majority population. So when you see it time and time and time again, then you can uh, see that this is perhaps not an aberration, but a systemic type of tendency that needs to be addressed by the American public. That, As Dr. King said, we're world citizens, but we also need to be responsible for our own government. So that concludes the news segment. And here's the introduction and focus of tonight's show. Okay, so welcome, alternative news listeners. This is uh, Pedro Gatos. This is Bringing Light into Darkness. This is 91.7 KOOP right here in the capital city of Austin, Texas. This is a recording of an interview that we are executing on Thursday, September the 3rd, 2020, to be broadcast on Monday, the 7th, Labor Day, 2020. And it's a great pleasure to be able to introduce our guest, Nan McCurdy, and welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Thank you, Pedro. It's, it's wonderful to be with you to be with your listeners, especially that I'll be with them on Labor Day. Absolutely. Let me just share a little bit for our audience of, of our guest. Nan McCurdy is an editor of a new book, The Revolution Won't Be Stopped, Nicaragua Advances Despite the U.S. Unconventional Warfare. Also, the new book is a sequel to Nicaragua Live, Uprising or Coup, which is about a history of the 2018 U.S. coup attempt. That was published in 2019. Nan McCurdy is the editor of Nika Notes, a weekly magazine produced by Alliance for Global Justice, that's AFGJ.org, with a weekly article and summaries of the most important news in Nicaragua. Nan is currently working in Puebla, Mexico in community development and health education with farm families, but she came to Nicaragua back in March, right at the beginning of the pandemic this year to visit her family. And while she was there, apparently the flights stopped leaving. So actually, if I'm not mistaken, you've been in Nicaragua then the last five consecutive months. Is that correct? That's uh, right. And we finally, the, the U.S. airlines have still not 
begun flights to Nicaragua, but they've been doing charter flights. I think the deal is they got financial bailouts, but on the side they can do charter flights. Um, but they were very, very expensive. They've come down a little. So we actually are going to fly to Mexico City September 10th. But we will have been here five and a half months. Tell us also, this is not the first visit you've made to Nicaragua. You spent quite a bit of time in Nicaragua. <laughs> over the, can, can you share those years of experience in Nicaragua? Yeah, I, I was here twice in 1984 and one of those times for three months. And then my first husband, Philip Mitchell, who's from San Diego and was in the Peace Corps in you know, the second and third year of the Peace Corps in Chile. We moved to Nicaragua in 1985. We had helped found a faith-based sistering relationship between Baltimore, Maryland and a town in the war zone of Nicaragua, San Juan de Limay, near the Honduran border. And this was during what Nicaraguans call Reagan's War, because that's exactly what it was. Reagan imposed a war on Nicaragua that killed about 50,000 Nicaraguans. Mm -hmm. And this is during the time back in, eventually, the Sandinistas were successful in coming to power in the revolution of 1979, but not before there was great investment and training of what was later to be called the Contras, in Nicaragua. Yeah. I, I just wanted to back up a little bit because I'm, I'm not so sure how fluent our audience is in this history, but we did a whole introduction to the show here about how U.S. intervention has resulted, if you look at it objectively, the forces that we support consistently have the impact on the majority population of installing or promoting governments in which the majority population are worse off under if our side wins, so to speak. And when I say that, I'm talking yeah. about quality of life indices. They're measurable. The Human Development Index, life expectancy, poverty rates, extreme poverty rates, literacy rates, access to water, sanitation, and electricity, and those types of things. And so when we talk about the Nicaraguan experience, we supported a horrific dictator, Samosa, who was preceded by his father, Anastasia Somoza. The uh, Somoza father-son combination stretched over decades of failed leadership in Nicaragua. And the majority population in Nicaragua rose up and overthrew this uh, oppressive regime. And the Contras were actually being armed, funded, trained, etc., by U.S. monies and were part of actually the National Guard that had oppressed the Nicaraguan people under the Somoza regimes under all these years. I don't want to get into all of that history, but I did want to set the stage because you wrote what I thought was a very provocative piece that's consistent with our introduction. This is Nicaragua. You wrote back on August 27th, 2020, a piece called U.S. Media Have Dismissed This Important Story. International banks rank Nicaragua among the best in services for the people, project, execution, and transparency. And it was not too long ago where we had, and it was in 2018, during this coup attempt, we had John Bolton and the State Department claiming and the White House denouncing Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua as a troika of, of tyranny. And so I wanted you to highlight some of the findings that you shared in this 
piece dated August 27th. And maybe you can start off with the recognition of Nicaragua by international lending institutions that had a much different perspective on the responsibility and transparency of the Nicaraguan government with respect to the health status and life quality status of the majority of Nicaraguans. Can you, can you share that with us, please? Sure. And, and I think one reason this is important is that the U.S., since the Sandinistas, which is basically the same movement, now a party, that was responsible for overthrowing 45 years of dictatorship in 1979, and then started a people's revolution with the probably the most famous literacy campaign in the world, where they brought illiteracy from more than 50% down to about 12%. And the people who were trained in them went out and taught were high school and college students who went to every corner mm-hmm. of the country. That's just one example of, of the really great things that happened mm-hmm. under the Sandinista revolution, the Sandinistas being the same group that led the overthrow of a 45-year dictatorship of a father and two sons. And as soon as they really began showing advances like a major agrarian reform, Reagan came to power and all of the former National Guard, who had been very brutal, were trained, paid, and kind of made the heads of of this new thing, the Contra. But it really was always the U.S. government. It was a U.S. war using a proxy force. So... We have the U.S. government all through the 80s waging war. They succeeded in getting the people to cry uncle, and not by huge margin, but to vote against the Sandinistas in 1990. Then we had more than 16 years of neoliberal governments, which, if anyone is not familiar with that term, it's really governments by the rich for the rich, that make the government apparatus, the state, very small, and they do things, they do austerity measures. So they, so you end up with less education, less health care, less social programs. Even if you have really good laws on the books for, let's say, for labor or for environment, it doesn't matter because with a small state, you're not paying personnel to enforce those regulations. The other thing they do in neoliberal governments is all of the things that were owned by the state, which means that were owned by you, which in Nicaragua had been the banks, all the utilities, a number of other things, literally virtually everything got privatized in those 16 years, which means that, that things that used to have a social purpose, for example, a train system, a train system that provided very good transportation to the population. Under the neoliberal government, the U.S. really ordered through the IMF and the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, as part of these austerity and privatization measures, they ordered the, the government they had put into place to get rid of the train. So they closed down the train system, And they literally sold everything down to every last track and the wood under the tracks 
And it's the saddest thing, but that's just one example. When you hear privatization, it means that things that used to provide social services for the population, if they're kept, they're only kept for the profit of a corporation. And, of course, in all the countries where this has happened since the 80s, the things that used to belong to the people of that country now generally belong to a transnational corporation with a big U.S. component. I went through that just because the the U.S. has continued. Every time things are going well in Nicaragua for the majority of the people, the United States intervenes in one way or another, wages war in one way or another against Nicaragua. The Sandinistas came back to the presidency. They started in 2007. There were elections in 2006 that they won, And then there were elections in 2011 that they won by 63.5%. And then in 2016, they won elections by more than 72% with more than 80% of the eligible voters voting, which is way higher, you know, than in the United States. Right. So I think the big thing people need to know before we even go on is that what I think happened is the U.S. could see that because life has just improved so much here in the last 14 years in healthcare and education and recreation and infrastructure, any part of life in in things related to women, that's the article we're going to look at in just a minute, with such incredible advancements and Simply more and more people vote, a higher percentage of the population votes with the Sandinistas in every election. The U.S. simply decided the opposition, you know, the oligarchy, old oligarchy, pro-U.S. opposition is never going to win. And so they decided, that's it, we're going to try a coup. And so that's where they'd been building towards it really for a while. But it began almost like an explosion in April of 2018, and we we can come back to that. Yeah, with, let me ask you with, this, uh-huh. because I want to focus, you said a lot there, and it's really, really important. You, in a very short amount of time, encapsulated the power of these international lending institutions that are disproportionately influenced by U.S. decision makers on behest of investment capital, let's just be frank here, And you mentioned the International Monetary Fund. You mentioned in your article the Inter-American Development Bank. You mentioned in these analyses made by independent economic institutions like the Central American Bank for Economic Integration and the Central American Institute for Fiscal Studies. I mean, everything is documented very clearly in here, this improvement in this quality of life of the majority population. And what was interesting, among other things, and, and maybe you can go through some of these indices a little more specifically, but you said when you compare Nicaragua to all the other, I think you stated there were some 19 countries that make up uh, Latin America, for instance, that only Ecuador and, and Bolivia invested more in their productive social infrastructure. So number one, can you describe what productive social infrastructure means for our audience? And secondly, we just want to acknowledge that Ecuador and Bolivia under Evo Morales and Bolivia and under, in Ecuador under Rafael Correa are two governments that we cooed out. And they had the same type of positive influence on the quality of life 
of their populations. Can you elaborate a little bit more on these indices that you, you cite in your paper there? But before you do, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. We will be back right after this with our guest, Nan McCurdy. <laughs> 